Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Break the glass and sharpen your pencils. It's midterm season on Election Shock Therapy. Joining me in this Google Hangout is... Uh, Matt Kukum. And we've got some special guests today, Matt. We gave Andy the day off, and in his place, we called up from the bullpen a couple of our um, journalism folks here at Bethel University. We've got journalism professor and professor of English, Scott Winter. Hi, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. <laughs> and awesome. we've also thanks. got uh, uh, Bethel's senior and editor-in-chief of The Clarion, which is Bethel's student uh, newspaper, Emma Harville. Hi, Emma. Hi, I'm also happy to be here. <laughs> it, this is great. I'm, I've really been looking forward to this in the context of this weird, contentious, really important presidential election season. I have great sympathy for the role that journalists have tried to have played in this whole process. So we wanted to get the two of you together with the two of us to talk a little bit about what role journalism is playing in this presidential election cycle. So before we get to that, though, uh, Scott, you already started spreading fake news about various people's participation in uh, the beauty pageant circuit. So, Scott, I, I need to know from you, if you were in a beauty pageant, what would be your talent? Um, I can I can with my fingers, I can like tap really loudly on my knuckles. I think it has something okay. to do with physics. Um, and other than that, I'm really an amazing lip syncer, particularly to late '70s funk. Okay, anything by Prince. So, so would you would you do like you know Purple Rain or something and accompany yourself on your own knuckles? Is that a thing you 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 do? I'm more a fan of um, the Controversy album, and Controversy is my favorite song by Prince. But yeah, I could lip sync it and then do the drum beat on my. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. It's at least as good as as water and glasses and and sort of like yep. playing percussion on, on water filled glasses. Good. Right. Emma, do you have a talent you'd 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 roll out? I don't know how to. I don't know how I would demonstrate this, but I can remember really weird, obscure things. Like I can still remember my like lunch code from elementary school or my gym locker combination from sixth grade um, or like my friend from like second grade's phone number, like home phone number. <laughs> just that off right now. Like, please, don't please don't for their sake. Cool, but I could. Do you know your credit card number? Can you share that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that one to myself. There is a, I learned this from Stephen Fatsis. Um, there is a world championship of memory. Um, so maybe you might want to look into that. Yeah, there's a people actually compete and they literally are, are shown um, decks of cards in randomized order. And it's like, can, can you get all 52 cards in order after being shown them one time? They're the kinds of things they do. Uh, Matt, what's your what's your beauty pageant talent? I don't know if if I don't know the the beauty pageants aren't a team sport but if i was up there with scott i could beatbox for scott is what i would do while he sings i think that'd be pretty fun so. i bet you could do some pretty mean impressions too with that voice do you do be useful i yeah I'd, I'd have to get some training i mean i can't sing but um yeah if i like sat down and listened to like a voice for a while i might be able to replicate it maybe but but here's the problem like all of the singers for the most part are they're all like high tenors right and so they're up there in the stratosphere but i'm a baritone like my falsetto can't get up there and that's that's frustrating so like all all the tenors get all the attention it's been this way forever since opera and beyond all the tenors get get the the fame and the popularity but that's whatever. why we hate so, opera yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever. you're um my one of my favorite are uh rock vocalists is a baritone so i think there's still hope for you man yeah, there's there's a few out there. So. All right, guys, thanks. Uh, let's talk journalism. Let's talk politics. 
But first, let's talk about the Clarion. So, Emma, you're the editor-in-chief, and we're in the midst of a really contentious election cycle here. Once, when you're inside your own newsroom, meeting with your, uh, your, your, uh, your writers and your editors, how do you discuss covering politics here on campus? Yeah. Um, well, this is a big, obviously, year to be a student editor. And as someone that didn't even plan to go into journalism, I, and I'm not even a journalism major, so I, I don't know. I never, this was never my passion uh, or anything that I went into college thinking I would do. Um, but at Bethel, I think it's even more interesting because students aren't as outwardly vocal about their viewpoints or who they're going to vote for as I feel like maybe other um, like state colleges might have. Um, so I found that's hard to keep everything fair and not let the biases might you know affect our coverage. Um, but one of my goals going into this year right away that I tried to push was to get coverage outside of just Bethel, um, whether that was attending um, like a Black Lives Matter protest and covering that or doing, we've sent um, editors to like a Trump rally um, mm -hmm. and covered that. So we've tried to do both sides and, and tried to do um, different things that the Clarion hasn't done as much in the past. Because I think if you look back in our um, past few years, there hasn't been much um, coverage of things outside of Bethel, like very focused on Bethel, um, which obviously it's a Bethel paper, but I have really been pushing to get to get outside of that. And so I think you can see that if you page through our past couple issues, but mm -hmm. I think in terms of getting our staff uh, to, to engage in that, it's been interesting because it's hard to tell how um, engaged they are and how interested they are in it. Um, so I don't know. Scott, do you have any input on that? Well, traditionally, since I've been here, this is my seventh year. Um, I mean, the political science classes are not spilling out into the hallways and into the dorms and into the paper because um, people don't want to be too open about all that stuff, you know? And the only people who do want to be open about that stuff are on the extremes. Mm -hmm. We don't want to just cover people on extremes. We've seen how that works out on 24-hour news channels, right? If that's all we're covering and we think that's the only reality out there, mm -hmm. then we're not, we're, we're not even, it's probably better not to do any story than to just be doing those stories. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult, you know, if people on the extremes are willing to talk and they're the only ones willing to talk, it's hard to get an accurate picture, which is why surveys are so important and data is so important. And, and that's why uh, Emma and Molly are starting to take that track. But, mm -hmm. you know, to generalize, the problem we've always seen at the Clarion, according to my editors, is that there's a silent conservative majority out there that doesn't want to talk about that because they're scared of being seen as bigoted or they're scared if they are tied to Trump in any way. Um, but that was there even before Trump. Um, so it's just been hard to get that majority, if that majority exists, to talk. Um, so we've been accused as a newspaper of being a liberal rag. We've been accused of being a conservative puppet for Bethel administration or for churches or for God. Um, so, you know, if you're getting accused by both sides, uh, hopefully you're, you know, you're doing a good job. Well, let me ask you to weigh into this uh, because I would agree with you that political science conversations are not spilling out into the hallways. One of the things that Matt and I lament is that we don't have, we have great conversations inside our classes and the Bethel population in general is far more politically quiescent. And we're, we wish it weren't that way. Uh, we're, you know, we're not, we're not advocating for specific political parties in, in our classes or even on Bethel's campus. And yet I kind of wish there was an active college Republican chapter and an active college Democrats chapter. And there really isn't right now. Um, do you when, I, when I talk to people outside the Bethel world and tell them about that, that our young Democrats and our young Republicans are not active, and they, they look at me like, now? How could they not yeah. be active now, mm -hmm. right? So I don't know how to explain it. I've asked Emma to explain it to me, and she doesn't know. Matt, can you explain it to me? <laughs> um, 
I've been at Bethel for one year and two months, um, but this is not a uniquely Bethel phenomenon. I've talked to um, colleagues at other, um, you know, Christian liberal arts institutions, and there's similar phenomenon in some of them. I think there might be a few things going on. Um, so yeah, there might be some fear of of you know blowback um, from people who disagree with you, perhaps, and maybe there's more of that on the conservative side. Um, if the school is in a more liberal area. Um, I think there is, um, and there's some interesting data on this, that um, young Christians are just not that into politics. Um, like young evangelical Christians um, who hold to sort of traditional Christian views, they're kind of jaded um, by politics and they're interested in other sorts of things. Um, like getting a ring by spring? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a ring, but that's, that is not even as prominent as it was even 10 or 15 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're interested in going out and doing things in the world, impacting the world, being world changers, to use that term, in other ways outside politics. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it as well. And then there's just the fact that, you know, Christians are, are nice and we don't like conflict, right? I think Bethel students are probably that way as well. So we don't want to be, um, you know, we sort of perceive politics as this nasty, conflictual thing, and we don't really see serious disagreements um, handled in a healthy way. We don't see that being modeled in broader culture. So you combine that with with students' own reticence to engage in any sort of, you know, sort of conflict or disagreement, and their sort of native um, sort of disinterest or jadedness with politics. I think that might, all those factors together might be creating this sort of environment. But that's, I don't, any, <laughs> that's mostly a hypothesis and not a, a real theory with lots of facts behind it. So. Yeah, I would just add in, I think that if you look at sort of the history of evangelicalism, for much of American history, evangelicalism was, a, was a, averse to politics and remained out of the political fray. And it's only within the last 50, 60 years that evangelicalism was sort of pulled kicking and screaming into politics. First of all, because of um, uh, the great Southern shift that uh, turned Dixiecrats into Republicans and made uh, a race a big issue in American politics, past civil rights. And then I think, um, you know, the mobilization of evangelicals on issues like Roe versus Wade first and then eventually gay marriage, those things mobilized evangelicals. But because younger evangelicals have shifted so dramatically on gay marriage and because they see they've not shifted at all on abortion, the numbers are very consistent there, but they probably see that as comparatively intractable, perhaps. It just, yeah, it really does seem like there's, there's less interest in sort of overt partisanship in our, yeah. our students right now. Yeah, and, and, and young evangelicals cross-cut in interesting ways. I'm glad you brought this up, Chris, and maybe maybe Scott and Emma can chime in too. I mean, it seems that, you know, I, the, the students I interact with, like, they are very opposed to abortion, and they certainly don't want to see abortion funded by the government. Um, but they f are kind of sort of settled on, like, yeah, same-sex marriage is here to stay. That's not going to change. Um, we want, you know, a government that, you know, is you know, active in creating sort of a, a significant social safety net through the welfare state, but we're also skeptical of, of what, bi how big government can go wrong. And so, so they're, they're not comfortable in either party. I mean, some of them are right, but some of them aren't comfortable. So it's like, they're not completely comfortable joining the college Democrats. They're not completely comfortable joining the college Republicans. And so, so where do they go? Right. What group do they belong to? And there is no group for them. Reddit. They go to Reddit. No, yeah, they should go sure. to the clarion staff is where they should go. Come on. <laughs> Let's go seek out some truth. No, yeah. Well, in that regard then, so what can you tell us, uh, Emma and Scott, about how Bethel students are approaching uh, this presidential election? We already know that they're not politically engaged in formal ways on campus. Does that mean they're not going to show up and vote also? Do we have any, do we have any knowledge or evidence for this? I have friends or acquaintances who I, I who've told me that you know they either don't like to get involved in politics or they feel like I don't I don't think I know enough about the candidates to make an, an informed decision. It's kind of like a way to I don't know excuse it. And I think this year there's a lot more. Like if you say you're not planning to vote, I think you, you people are going to be scared to say that, right? They're going to mm -hmm. be afraid that people will attack them, but. I definitely have 
multiple people I know who I, I don't think that they'll vote or I, I just sense a very strong, like they just don't have any interest in it whatsoever. So tell them about your editorial, um, what the main so, point that's coming out this Thursday in the Clarion. Oh, we yeah. got a preview here. Nice. Um, so a week ago, we did like a, a vote in our newsroom about who we would plan to vote for at that point. Um, like we all put our heads down and <laughs> raised our hands like we were in uh, elementary school. And um, all of us voted the same way. Hmm. Okay. And um, it was all for Biden. Okay. Interesting. And, um, Liberal, media, wacko, communists. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, keep talking. <laughs> we later had one one student who wasn't there um, vote um, for, for uh, Trump. Okay. Actually, I don't know if it was specifically for Trump. It was it was just not for Biden. Gotcha. Um, but that surprised me a lot. Um, and then going into creating our survey that we sent out with um, Bethel Student Government, um, their like weekly email. Um, we're still getting responses right now, but I'm compared to our vote in the newsroom. I'm surprised by the results, and we're, we're going to be publishing those soon. Ooh, I'm excited! Data. <laughs> yeah. So even the Clarion is out of touch with its readers, maybe uh, or maybe not. Who knows? It was it was kind of shocking to me. Yeah, it was. Scott, were you? What were? You, what was your reaction? Um, I was pretty floored um, yeah. by both votes. Yeah. The, the student body uh, sample and the clarion it's shocked because people do not talk about it. So I don't no. know, you know? No. Yeah. So uh, do we get a little preview of the data or do we have to we have check to out the clarion article? I can give a preview of the data. Um, <laughs> so a large, so far, a large um, chunk had no, said they had no party affiliation. Yep. Um, but then. Sure. Um, about equal um, amount of people said Republican. Um, and there was a very small percentage of Democrat affiliation. Um, Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but we asked a specific question about pro-life and pro-choice. And again, mm -hmm. a large amount of people said it would either strongly impact their choice or, um, or just it would impact their choice. So hmm. um, that was also interesting. But fascinating. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, I'm not a pollster, but I'll play one on TV. Did you ask people about their partisan affiliation and their presidential vote choice, or just kind of lump those two things together? Yeah, we did both. Okay. So, so right now, there is a um, there is a slight, um, slightly more people voting. Who plan to vote for Trump over Biden? About ten percent difference. Okay. Um, and then there's still about twelve percent who say they don't know who they're going to vote for yet. Interesting. So the gap between Biden and Trump is much narrower than the gap between mm -hmm. identification as a Republican and identification as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so what's what's interesting to me is that. Um, from a journalist perspective, there's all kinds of great stories in oh, that yeah. data. I mean, from stories about how Thanksgiving is going to go to stories about whether <laughs> you vote the same as your parents or grandparents, whether you know where the inf where the the motives are coming from yeah. um, in your history that are going to drive you in the ballot box. Yeah. So, Emma, talk about what you wrote about in the editorial, though. Go back to that. Like, what was your message? Um, so. So we wanted to, sensing kind of this, I don't know if I'd call it apathy, but just this kind of like this interest in, in politics this year, we wanted to do an editorial kind of um, pushing people to vote in the first place, um, but also to kind of challenge them in a way that they might traditionally think, because I think a lot of people that I've met here who do have views, um, they're kind of just their parents' views um, or what they grew up being told. And um, when you ask them to kind of explain why they view certain 
things uh, in different ways. I honestly can't really explain it um, beyond just like, this is the way I, it's just the way I think. So, um, so we did a really short editorial that's going to be out on Thursday that is kind of, we went, we went through our past issues, all the kind of vulnerable people that we've covered in our um, stories, whether it was um, sexual assault victims at Bethel, um, people who we encountered at these protests that we attended, um, or who else am I missing? Nursing students who weren't able to, to do their yeah. clinicals, um, all kinds of people, um, people you know, who are dealing with healthcare patients. And so uh, Emma and Molly's message or the staff's message was bring those people with you when you go into the ballot booth, you know, into the voting booth. Um, and so be selfless and be empathetic when you vote. You know, don't just vote for your self-interest. Mm -hmm. oh, um, another thing that is interesting is in our poll, we asked whether they believe that the uh, results of the election will impact their everyday lives or like their personal lives. And a large majority said it either strong, they strongly agreed with that statement or they agreed, um, hmm. which I found very interesting because- That is interesting. Because uh, I really don't, I don't know <laughs> if, if that, so, yeah. So it seems like we get this weird juxtaposition where a lot of students recognize this is important mm -hmm. and that they probably should care, mm -hmm. but either they're anxious because they don't feel like they know enough to care appropriately, or they feel like they're being surveilled or judged mm -hmm. uh, because of the way they care about it. And so we get these sort of dampening effects on overt expressions of, of political preference. Um, I'm not surprised by the numbers. I mean, the numbers sort of bear out what we have, what we're seeing nationally, which is uh, traditionally um, Republican Party ID is stronger, but in this particular election, uh, more independents have, to the extent they exist, have mm -hmm. swung over to the Democratic side, which accounts for Joe Biden's lead. But uh, Republican support for Donald Trump remains very strong. So if we have students who are strongly affiliating with the Republican Party, it would make sense they continue to support the Republican candidate. Um, and those who aren't are, are drifting over perhaps to, uh, to, to the Democratic candidate. But um, I, I, I guess I'm not, I guess I'm, I'm anxious to see kind of the, the role. And I, I, I appreciate the editorial that, you, that you've written because just getting people to take the step of being politically active in terms of voting is a key step, not just for this election, but once you've voted, Gosh darn it, it's kind of addictive. Um, and it tends to cause people to be a little bit more uh, aware of the of their political choices and of the political environment. So if nothing else, that's good. One other thing I'd like to say about the decisions Emma's making, you know, Emma's an editor of a school newspaper for a student body that comes from, for the most part, families that have a mistrust of the media, right? It's a difficult position to be in for Emma. So Emma's first choice when she learned about endorsing candidates in an editorial was, yeah, let's go do that. That sounds interesting. Let's take a poll of our staff members. Let's see what they say. And she found out what they said. And she thought, wow, I don't know if I want to do an endorsement, <laughs> you know, yep. because will that shut us off from our own constituents, right? Mm -hmm. um, and just have them pass us off as, as a liberal reg or a conservative reg based on what we come up with. So that's why she chose that. She made that different choice. And to me, that's, that's the real um, learning that's going on when you become an editor, trying to make those hard decisions. Um, I wish the professional media would make, make as smart decisions as Emma and Molly and Will make, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> well, let's, let's turn to that issue now. So um, as uh, Emma Union, you mentioned you're not a journalism major. Can I ask, what is your major? What are you yeah, studying? Yeah, I'm um, communication, so okay. I'm a journalism minor. Um, uh, even better then, between you and, and, and Scott, I'm curious if you would talk a little bit about what you're seeing in election coverage outside the Clarion, outside of Bethel, whether it's local here in the Twin Cities or whether it's more national. What are some of the ways you see the media covering this election, particularly if you see it changing from, from prior election cycles? 
Well, in, in my case, you know, I have a pretty strong stance that the best and the worst journalism is happening right now. Hmm. And it's happening happening because of the corporatization of journalism. Uh, it's happening because of the internet. It's happening because of ratings, which apparently are really super important. It's happening because of the business model. And I don't want to get into a whole speech about those things. I feel strongly about all those things. But I would argue the internet has democratized, you know, opinion making, right? But it hasn't done much for reporting. And corp corporate journalism has done a lot for opinion making because they get good ratings and make, that makes money, but it's done very little for reporting. In fact, it's, newsrooms have been cut in half or by 90% when it comes to reportage. So unless you're in a really good ethical news outlet, there's a lot less reportage or a lot fewer facts and a lot more opinion, right? And everybody's got a megaphone and their Facebook page is their personal newspaper that they send out to everybody and they don't fact check you know where that stuff comes from which gets to chris moore's fact checking question but in newsrooms <laughs> there aren't many fact checkers anymore because they've been decimated right um so so my feeling is that the atlantic the washington post the new york times npr npr pbs news hour there's a lot of great journalism happening right now maybe some of the best stories ever done like the covid coverage in the atlantic is amazing right but that's a really small piece of the pie because there's so much journalism out there that's horrible and none of it gets um none of it gets there's no gatekeeping on it you know which is both good and bad but mostly bad i would argue in the political realm so that uh, an opinion piece um that's full of buzzwords like white privilege or you know anything, uh, Black Lives Matter or whatever that doesn't get to the real issues that are underlying that you know. So it's one thing to go cover a protest and talk about the the most violent moment of that protest, but not talk about the issues that have that brought us to this point, and talk about policy that has brought us to this point because that just doesn't get good ratings and it doesn't get a lot of clicks, and so all that is driving this, and so you know. When are we going to go back to having a really interesting data-driven policy debate about climate change, about racial injustice? I don't know, because we're just going to keep – it's a lot easier and quicker, and it gets um, better ratings if we just have people yell at each other on TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, let me let – me, I'm, not, I'm not very good, as Matt knows, at being a curmudgeon. Um, I'm, I'm wired for optimism, but let me pretend to be a curmudgeon just for a second and, well, ask, Scott, <laughs> um, and ask, see, I even had to preface it with that in a good humored way so that you knew I didn't really mean it. But, well, sounds like a disclaimer. You know. Exactly. But hasn't it always been that way? I mean, if we go back to the election of, of I'm channeling Andy now, Matt, of Andrew Jackson, for example, I mean, the level of vitriol around old hickory. It was enormous, right? But we've always been sort of yelling at each other, haven't we? But I agree with you. We have lost sight of any meaningful policy discussions. But this has always been there, too. I mean, you guys know the rhetoric better than I and the historical rhetoric better than I. But journalism itself has both fueled that and, you know, dampened that, depending on the era that we were in, right? Okay. But when the canons of journalism came into existence in the in mid or early 20th century, things got better. And then, you know, around Nixon and Watergate and all that, investigative journalism became interesting and sold newspapers. That changed how elections were covered as well, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, rhetoric has always been there, and journalism has been used as a tool by politicians. Um, I mean, including Pulitzer, Joseph Pulitzer and Randolph Hearst. To, to drive political ideology. So yeah, it's nothing new. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, that I agree. And, and I mean, it, it helps to think about sort of how journalism, well, journalism isn't even the right word. So media has shifted its structure, right? So for the longest time, you know, we just had, you know, various papers and pamphlets that were published in towns and cities, right? And the majority of these were partisan, right? And that's what we had for the longest period of time. It was only once you get sort of the advent of national level 
um, national level um, media outlets, especially beginning with radio and then broadcast television as well. Um, and then the prominence, you know, the rise of prominence of, you know, a few sort of national newspapers where you began to see, um, you know, the media begin to sort of take a different role to try to become a little bit more sort of objective, so to speak. Um, and and they commanded sort of this this national level attention. But but now we sort of decentralized again. Um, that shift began a little bit with cable television, but it's it's really taken off with the Internet. Um, whereas previously, there were only a few entities that could afford to, you know, own television stations and own newspapers and operate them. And they could command basically most of the advertising revenue. All of that is decentralized. All that's been blown up. Um, and now, you know, as, as we've said, you know, anyone can basically start up a small sort of media outlet and turn it into a giant within the period of, of months or, or just a couple of years. Um, and, and, and what drives this? What drives media coverage? It's, it's views, right? It's people coming to the outlet um, and giving their attention because that's what the media is doing is they are selling your attention to advertisers, right? And of course, to do that well, they have to keep you driving back. And so the central goal of news newsrooms, these news agencies, for lack of a better term, is to get you to keep consuming the news at their site and to keep you coming back. And there are certain things that they will do that are proven to be effective at getting you to come back. Negative news, um, over-dramatizing things that really don't matter, irrelevancies, right? And these sorts of things, these sorts of, and, and confirming people's own sort of partisan and ideological biases. These are the things that draw people back. But unfortunately, they're not conducive to good reporting good investigative journalism and challenging people to sort of think outside of their ideology. We have, um, we have this weird juxtaposition now where over the course of the last decade, we've seen the rise of the fact checkers. Uh, these are some, in some cases they initiated as sort of para journalistic entities. Is that a fair way to say them, Scott, that they weren't journalists per se, but they were made up of journalists. They were these, uh, well, I'm thinking about the Annenberg schools, project fact check and PolitiFact and some of these others. And increasingly that role, because of what you've described has devolved to, to practicing journalists to be not just providing reporting, but also fact-checking the statements made by politicians. I'll say as a political scientist, I'm observing increasing political science scholarship in two regards. There's always been scholarship on leaders who lie and leaders who mislead. But increasingly, we're starting to pay more attention now to conspiracy theories and how uh, the psychology behind which um, fallacious beliefs, and I'm thinking about QAnon here, for example, become so viral and so infectious and are so hard to put down, for example. Uh, Mike Pence, in fact, in the vice presidential debate, made reference to a um, an Obama-era miscue on a Syrian hostage rescue operation. It was entirely fallacious. And it wasn't that he was lying. It's just that this story that the Obama administration sat on a hostage rescue op for, for months and didn't act on it is wrong and it's and it's it's really hard to root these things out of the system how do you how i guess i'm asking you to lament a little bit but how hard is it as journalists to simultaneously undertake the reporting function but also to have this sort of lingering fact checking up uh, um, function that you could also play in the same time so so politifact was was born out of the saint petersburg times now the tampa times it was kind of created by uh, a couple of tech, techie type journalists who were really embracing the internet, right? But one of them, Matt Waite, I, I used to be a colleague with him. He, he, the irony is he hates politicians, right? He hates politics. He doesn't trust anybody. So he launched this idea with the idea that let's hold these guys accountable, these mostly white guys accountable for what they say. And let's just have a, just a, just a, a meter that says, Completely true, false, pants on fire, right? And he literally kept it that simple. And it was a huge hit because people love seeing people caught in lies. And, you know, the mantra that all politicians lie, which, by the way, it is and isn't true. Um, it got a bunch of clicks, right? Uh, but in the end, did it distract us, I think? Was it a gadget 
that distracted us from doing meaningful reporting. Because I'll tell you right now, Emma Harville has no interest in having a career where she goes and talks to a conservative who yells about this and then goes and gets the other side and talks to a liberal who yells about this. And she realizes she has not made the world a better place. And she doesn't have any meaningful reporting from the front lines from people who are being affected by these opinions and decisions, Mm -hmm. right? Unfortunately, CNN, where they have wonderful reporters, Sarah Sidner is as good a reporter as there is. She was on Lake Street um, that Friday night after the George Floyd killing and doing amazing work. I've seen her do amazing work in India. Um, And she's this empathetic, unbelievable reporter that we we're going to try to get to campus here if COVID hadn't happened. But she's also tied to CNN, which kind of got ridding, rid of all of its primetime reporting and just went with all opinion making all night because that's the only thing that could compete with Fox News, which was killing them in the ratings, which was to do what they did. Emma, do you want to be an opinion maker? Is that what you want to do? Not if that's not my job. <laughs> no. what, do, what do you want to do? Like, what is going to make a difference? I Like what you said, like the only reason I'm, or one of the only reasons why I'm even doing this is because I like to talk to the people who are affected and the people who, like these policies, at the end of the day, probably won't affect that many people here at Bethel. Um, but going out, like when we went to India and seeing the people who live there that have such different lives. Like, that's why I do this. And so I'm not interested in in um, the kind of sensationalism that I think this reporting has turned into. I think Emma would rather sit on a on a bench with a with a woman in a in a Haryana village than sit down across uh, the desk uh, of Donald Trump in the Oval Office, because because she's going to get a more honest story out of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I admire that. And yet I'm struck by the fact that we've really given uh, journalists, this enormous additional responsibility beside, beyond just reporting of being sort of arbiters of, of truth uh, in our political discourse, rather than holding politicians and other leaders to account to at least approximate truth telling. Um, I, I, was, I was thinking about the Henry Frankfurter version of this, and I'll avoid the swearing that the Frankfurter uses. But the, um, the the three categories of truth statements: truth, lies, and BS. Um, and basically, throughout most of most of American political discourse, we've basically told politicians either tell the truth or lie. And if we, if you lie and we catch you, then there's consequences for that. But now we've basically given them this third option of BS where they say, we don't really care if you're telling the truth or not, which then means that someone else actually has to weigh in and make truth statements. And that seems really problematic to me. It's asking journalists, frankly, to do too much with limited resources. I, I I wish it weren't that way, but I'm also not sure how to um, pull up on the stick and pull the plane out of that dive. Well, yeah. I would be really interested in Matt and, and, and Chris's opinion on this, but the other big issue at play there, aside from that, is that all the decisions that have been made and all the people who have contributed to the idea that the Washington Post and the Washington Times are the same thing, or the idea that the New York Times is as liberal as... QAnon is conservative. Neither of those things are true, but there's a huge amount of the voting population that thinks they're equals. You know what I mean? But, you know, part of that responsibility for them thinking that way lies on journalists as well. It also lies on platforms like Google and Facebook and so on, and other power brokers who are making money off that confusion. But it also falls on journalists should have been more clear about what they're doing. Yeah, back to the the fact checking thing. I mean, I think yeah, we're all interested in truth, but you know, some truths are more important to be. I mean, some lies are more important to be checked than others, right? But it's not. Sure. But the lies that are that need to be checked most are not the ones that get checked, right? So, so you know, journalists run around all day fact checking what a politician says or what's being said on Twitter, right? But that's just what politicians are saying. They're spewing stuff all the time, right? No one's going out and fact checking, you know, like the issues, like what politicians are actually doing and whether or not 
you know, that's, you know, and the effects that's having, like the actual policy issues on the ground. Um, so, so, you know, a preoccupation with fact checking the truthfulness of what politicians are saying really has very little utility, right? It's not useful in, in helping people to hold their politicians accountable for what they're actually doing um, in the decisions that they're making. Um, and, but of course, you know, no one really cares about those things, right? Uh, those things aren't going to generate um, traffic on websites or get, you know, get people to tune into, you know, the cable TV station, right? Um, what, what matters is sort of the, the gotcha moments um, and catching politicians and the lies that they're saying. So, so it, it, you know, the media needs to do a better job. Journalists need to do a better job. But you know what? We get the journalism and the media we deserve, just like we get the politicians we deserve in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, politicians and the media, to some extent, they're responding to demands from from consumers and from voters, respectively, right? Um, and and you know, ultimately, I think you know, changes in the media are going to require different demands from us. Well, to that point, like Emma knows this, and she better believe it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, about ten years ago, news conferences became events. Like they became news stories, just the fact that you're having a news conference. It was never that case before that. It was never that case. I mean, the only reason to have a press conference in the political realm, in the news realm, in the public safety realm, in the sports realm was just so that newsmakers could talk to the public through the, through the medium that was the media, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's a circus. Like the White House... Um, press secretary doesn't really have any news and that event itself is the news, right? Press conferences with coaches, they're not news and they're covered as news events, right? And politics is covered like a sport, right? Here's what he said, here's what she said, and now that's the story. Emma's not interested in any of that, right? She's interested in a big story, a person's story, some triumphant story, some tragic story that is the face of what's wrong with this issue. You know what I mean? Or a solution to this issue, you know? Sorry, I just, I get really upset about this kind of stuff. <laughs> is there anything structural? I'm looking at kind of to Matt's point that we get the, we get the media we deserve. It's if, if, if anything, social media is only primed to become more addictive over time, uh, to become more, um, uh, rapid, uh, less nuanced, um, uh, more, um, uh, just de designed for, for, to become more like junk food. Um, and I, is there anything that, that can pull us out of that? I mean, I, I, yes, it's our responsibility to make wise media choices, but we're not well primed to respond well to the kinds of social media that we're being faced with. Yeah. So a few things. So, there's a lot of users of social media who aren't engaging in politics on social media. So there's that. So yeah. it's not social media per se. It's how social media sort of interacts in interesting ways with political news. Um, so there's that. I mean, Twitter, for example, I mean, I heard some stat like the, 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 like 70 or 80% of the tweets on politics are by like five or 10% of Twitter users. Like it's, it's that skewed. Right. So, so this, you know, so there are, particular sort of subsets of the American public that are really activated, really sort of um, involved in this way with sort of the the discourse for it's not really a good term here, but the conversation that that's going on. So so there is that. Um, I think, too, um, I don't know if this gets to your to your question, but I think part of it is, um, you know, some we're, we're hardwired as human beings, psychologically hardwired to be risk averse, right? And so we respond more to negative news than to positive news, right? This is why, you know, the nightly news um, or, you know, if you're local TV, for example, it's always like, you know, where is the latest murder, right? What is the latest, you know, terrible thing that's happened that is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's terrible and it's bad, but it's sort of over-dramatized, overblown, and most people aren't affected by it. But there's not a conversation of like, well, here's, here's the city hall, you know, discussion that, you know, on a policy that's going to have a huge impact on, you know, half the, half the city's population that doesn't get covered as much. Right. And so, 
and so this this really come kind of comes down to to how humans are wired um and unfortunately it's interesting that because humans are wired to be risk adverse they respond more to negative news and it, but when they go and watch more negative news because that's what the media knows that they want to watch then they it, and there's interesting there's interesting studies done on this the more that you watch negative news the more that you think bad things are happening right and there's like and we've known this for a long time there's been studies like 20 30 years ago that like literally the more nightly news you watch the more paranoid you become about crime and violence right um, and so it's this 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 weird sort of feedback loop, right? And I, I'm not really sure how that gets broken, except by people sort of making a conscious decision to to make adjustments, um, or for newsrooms to make conscious decisions to make adjustments. But that's going to be really hard as long as they're beholden to advertising dollars, right? And so you might need a different economic model as well. Um, it sounds, so Matt, like what you're advocating for are some really well-trained liberal arts students exactly. who, can who can discern what is quality media consumption and to avoid some of the pitfalls you're describing. Right. But even, you know... <laughs> And someday get to an electorate that, that, that thinks that way as well. But let's put yeah. this in terms of Emma's life. Think about Emma's life right now. Emma, her, her, like the news cycle is crazy right now. I just sent Chris an example of that, Paige Cornwell, who went with us to, to India. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist with the Seattle Times, said um, the lieutenant governor just left Washington, moved to California to become a priest, and that happened months ago, and none of us realized it because the news cycle is so crazy right now. Normally, that would be the biggest story of the year, right? So think about in Emma's terms. She's the editor-in-chief on a Christian liberal arts campus where COVID news is crazy, election news is crazy. She's in a market that is the epicenter of racial injustice protesting, right? She's at the epicenter of all the biggest stories in the country right now. And she has to take five classes. She has to deal with an advisor who asks 10 things of her every day. Her life is just speeding up and speeding up and speeding up like everybody's life. So, Emma, what did you do about it? What's been the best day so far this fall? What did you do to get away from it? I know what it is. Do you not know? <laughs> what you is went it? up north, and what did you do? When I went up north, I went on a hike. <laughs> Where did you go on a hike? I went on a hike um, in Silver Bay. When all the fall colors are really nice. Which lakes? <laughs> Which lakes? Um, Bean and Bear Lake. Right. So let's get back to social media. Now I'm seeing this continuous stream of photos by Bethel students or other friends of mine on that hill that shows both Bear Lake and Bean Lake, right? Mm -hmm. This is what people are doing to get away from the craziness of the constant news cycle of all these big stories and all this churning inside them, right? And inside their families as this election gets crazier and crazier and crazier and everything Trump says is news and everything that happens with the police or not the police is news and COVID, 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 what are the rates today? She just wants to go to Bean and Bear Lake and just walk around in a figure eight or whatever that, I don't know what shape that trail takes, but this is what we need, right? From our media, from our leaders, from the electorate, get away and just have a deep discussion about what really matters, right? And let's have stories that are substantive about the stuff that really matters, right? That's where we have to get to, from a media literacy standpoint, from an enjoying our lives standpoint. I mean, I don't want to get too abstract here, but you guys know what I'm saying? I do. And I would say, you know, in addition to sort of, you know, getting away and turning off the news, I mean, over the summer, um, summers when I'm not, you know, having to have discussions about politics, I might go a week or two without really paying much attention to the news. And it's, it's good <gasps> to have, it's, yeah, it's, it's good to have uh, Sabbaths um, from news watching. Actually, on Sundays, um, I, you know, for a good chunk of the day, I take a break from watching the news, right? Um, I don't, I don't check. I don't check my my the news websites that I frequent, but beyond that, um, you know, I think not only should we take times away from the news, but when we do engage with the news, we should be smart about how we do it, right? So don't read forty articles a week on who said what or what the latest controversy is or what what's going on in this or that political horse race, right? Pick pick a few quality sources and pick four or five long form articles 
from them that do a deep dive into some issue that maybe you care about, that you think is important. Not that you feel is important because it's dramatic, but because it actually really matters in some way. Because someone's life is being a touch touched or there's some, you know, real policy issue that we need to think long and hard about. Do, you know, read the long form articles in which there's good reporting, in which there's consulting of professionals that spend their lives dealing with these, you know, difficult, these difficult policy issues or, you know, difficult problems that humans are encountering. Read those four or five articles a week and don't do anything else, right? Focus on those diversify your sources, choose quality over quantity, and that will go a long way towards making you more informed and more thoughtful and probably far less anxious as well. I, I teach a class on food politics, and so one of the topics we confront in that class is food deserts. I'm going to make an analogy here as a way of wrapping this conversation up. Uh, there are places in the United States where grocery stores are limited because of the geographic space and the socioeconomic conditions of the community around it. And so what springs up in those areas is a lot of fast food joints. And when all you're starting with is fast food, it's really easy to eat fast food. And it's not healthy for you. It produces a lot of chronic health issues. And what we're saying basically here is that we're in a media environment that's a little bit like a food desert. There's a lot of fast food options. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of just while it might be news, might be accurate information, it's the kind of stuff that's designed to be maybe whether it's social media addictive or just not contributing to the welfare and good uh, and good of society. We have to be take go the extra step to be extra disciplined, and this is really hard in food deserts. We're in an information desert in that kind of way. We have to be willing to take the kinds of sabbaths that Matt is talking about, take the kinds of sabbaths that Scott is talking about, take the actual actions that Emma's doing, um, and also consume healthier choices, healthier informational choices. And I, I appreciate that that's what the Clarion's doing, and I encourage folks to look for those kinds of sources in their media diets. Uh, we can stop doom scrolling. We can do it together. Um, it may not affect our society, but it can affect it can affect you. So, and, thank you guys. This is fun. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's hey, been be great. Before we sign off, let me just remind everybody that you can um, catch us every week here on Election Shock Therapy. We'd love to hear from you. You can uh, contact us at electionshocktherapy at gmail .com. Uh, hey, Emma, if people want to get a hold of the Clarion, how should they do that? And, yeah. and tell them about your new podcast that's coming up. Um, yeah, if you guys want to contact uh, the Clarion, you can email um, myself at emma-harville at bethel.edu. Um, and then we have a podcast coming out uh, this week with United Cultures of Bethel, um, kind of talking about different issues like this. Um, our first episode's called Black at Bethel, and it's with BSU. Um, a couple students just talk about their experiences here. So I'm really excited about it. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, too. You can get a hold of us at channel 3900. And there's a, you can email us at channel 3900 at gmail.com. We've got a bunch of great podcasts coming out of the pipe, things like Bookish at Bethel, Avatar with Academics, and plenty of other things as well. Thanks, friends. This is a great conversation. Until you hear from us next time, go Royals. <laughs> <laughs>